and welcome to The Block, the Building, Learning, and Organizational Culture podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kirby, and on today's episode, we're doing another Dear Heidi episode where I answer some questions that I've either heard frequently throughout the years or that have come up multiple times within my network or circle. Let's get started. First of all, the question I want to answer is, how do we get people to use all these new courses we've given them? And I've heard this asked in a couple of different situations. The first is when a company invests in like an entire course library, a third-party course library. Um, Some of them have hundreds of courses. And I've heard it asked when an L&D team has created a bunch of courses as well. So people want to know, what do we do to incentivize folks to utilize the learning? The answer isn't simple because people's motivation is not simple, right? So if you give me a ton of options of things that I can choose in an area that's not my specialty, right? Because we're approaching it. Learning and development is our specialty. We could navigate. We could wade our way through hundreds of courses, But if that's not our area, it's like if I was going to get the outside of my house painted a certain color and I was given hundreds of options to choose from of all different colors, maybe I could narrow it down to like a color family or like, oh, I really like blues or, oh, I really like dark reds or or something like that. But having that many choices is really overwhelming. So if you're buying a course library or a content library that has hundreds of options and you're just, you know, releasing the Kraken (laughs) to your entire organization, you're not going to get the return that you hope for because people aren't going to know where to start. What you need to do is you need to, first of all, work with your leadership, work with your managers to help them understand the course catalog and what it has in it so that they can use that in development plans, in performance plans, in, you know, in team building events for their teams. And that way you're getting leadership buy-in and you're also creating some structure around the courses that could best serve your audience. The other thing you can do is release curated content paths depending on things that are valuable to your organization. So for example, if your organization is embarking on a DEIA initiative, you can go ahead and create a curated path of courses around that. If your organization has specific business goals around sales or around customer service, you can create specific learning paths geared towards that and use it as a way to get everyone within your organization speaking the same language, but also as a way to provide less choices for your learners. And by reducing those amounts of choices and giving people a starting point, giving people a clear starting point and then saying like, 
hey, go and explore from here too. And if, if depending on the course library, they may have that option. There may be some kind of AI built in that's like, hey, if you liked this course, you might like this one as well. And so really kind of guiding the way and curating some of those resources in the beginning is going to be really, really helpful and really beneficial to getting that adoption because people need to know what they're looking at. They don't want to waste time digging through it and they want to know how it's going to benefit them in their role. The next question is, what is the difference between L&D and instructional design? And this question actually comes up quite a bit, especially when people are considering getting into the field or they're considering roles within the field because sometimes we play a little fast and loose with our definitions in the field. And I think that it can be confusing for newcomers. But I'll give you my take, which may not be everyone's take. Instructional design is a very specific skill set and a very specific role on an L&D team. L&D, of course, stands for learning and development. And that greater team can have all sorts of folks on it. It can have instructional designers, project managers, organizational development people, um, trainers, employee experience folks, multimedia developers, graphic designers, videographers, animators, all of the people who help make the visuals experience amazing. And then it can also have learning architects and learning engineers and learning management system administrators and learning and development coordinators and all sorts of different people who have different functions that help the overall learning and development team meet the business goals and produce value for the organization. The follow-on question that I get to that a lot is, how do I know which role is right for me? Unfortunately, I don't have time to explain each of the roles I just mentioned, but hopefully if there is something that sounded interesting to you on that list that I rattled off, you can go ahead and just do a quick Google search. But also, search for the kinds of things that you want to be doing in a role and see what kinds of titles keep coming up regularly. That may give you a little bit of insight. And if you just kind of search for learning and development on the whole, sometimes you'll get some of those different roles and you can go into a few different job descriptions, you know, on Google or LinkedIn and look at what those responsibilities are and see if that's something that kind of resonates with you. Because another question I get asked is, can I be an instructional designer if I don't want to create e-learning? And the answer is, honestly, it depends. I've met plenty of instructional designers who had never touched Storyline or Captivate in my career, but it's also become a standard for our industry. So I would say that depending on the role and depending on how open you are to different experiences and different um, kind of makeups of a team like sometimes you wouldn't be doing that because you have someone who develops everything and and creates something with a multimedia background or perhaps you're only doing instructional design for 
virtual or in-person instructor-led training. So there are reasons, there are ways um, to avoid certain things that you don't want to do. But by and large, I would say, again, just kind of start navigating those different learning and development roles and job descriptions and read through the responsibilities and see what really resonates with you and what sounds like it's appealing and something you'd want to do for a living. All right, the next question is, how do I know which people to follow on LinkedIn, which people are quality, and who is just trying to sell something? This is hard because at our at our core, we're all trying to sell something, right? Sometimes the simple thing is that we're trying to sell our expertise, right? We want people to notice that we are experts in our given corner of the field and we want people to respect that and have conversations with us and we want to learn from people and we want them to learn from us. That's still a form of trying to sell something, right? Because we're trying to sell ourselves, especially job search, right? You start using LinkedIn more typically on average, unless you're there all the time, but you start using it more when you're specifically looking for a new role or a new opportunity or a different opportunity. And so in that case, you're trying to sell yourself, right? So I think the question is less, who's trying to sell me something? And who is this person, right? And I think that's really important to ask. Who is this person? What credentials do they have to be talking about what they're talking about? What background do they have? What experience do they have? What life lessons have they learned that have given them this perspective? And do all of these things then make sense for me to listen to what they have to say? Let me give you a couple examples. Let's say for one that someone is selling you on the idea of a role. They're telling you that getting X role in X industry is easy, that you're going to make a ton of money, and that all you need to do is do these three things. And they explain the three things very, very vaguely, but offer to help you with those three things in a program that they run. Could it be a legitimate program? It could, but I'll tell you one thing. If getting a job is easy for you, then you're either super talented, super lucky, or super punching below your weight class. (laughs) Because there's a lot of talented people out there in the world, and there's a lot of talented people in learning and development. And even with experience in the field, and even with my PhD right around the corner and all the different places that I've worked and all the different experiences that I've had and tools that I've learned, I still find it hard to find a new job. And so I think a first red flag in that situation would be someone saying that something is easy. Some things are easy, but when it comes to job searching and talking to strangers and learning new technology and learning a new role, a new industry, 
that's the kind of thing that's not incredibly easy. And so when people are trying to oversimplify things, that's usually a red flag for me. We'll talk about oversimplification again in a minute. The other thing is the amount of money that they're they're offering or saying that you'll make. And then the fact that it's pretty clear that they're trying to sell something, right? And you need to look at that person's credentials. Are they working in the fields that they claim to have expertise in? Or have they worked in the field previously? Learning and development is a growing changing field. The more we learn about technology, the more we learn about the brain and how people learn, the more we learn about cognitive psychology, the more our field changes and grows and evolves. And if somebody has been out of the practical application of skills for a really long time, they may not be able to provide as much value as someone who's actually doing the work right here and now. Do they have a foundational knowledge or some kind of historical knowledge of the industry or the fields? I know people get really touchy about academia, but I think at least doing your own research to find out about the history of learning and development of instructional design, educational technology and distance learning performance technology and performance consulting, finding out those things, just reading a little bit about the theories and the foundations and the other fields that we've borrowed from helps so tremendously on the job. And if people are lacking that, they don't really have the deep knowledge and understanding that other folks that you could be working with have. So I wanted to go back to oversimplifying. Another example of this would look like someone making really vague statements, defining pieces, parts of the field. Microlearning is blank. Instructional design is blank. Um, You know, performance equals blank. And they make these like really brief posts. Summing up things that are entire job functions, entire industries, entire fields. And they sum them up in a little sentence and then make some sort of clever quip about the whole thing and get a million likes. And um, it can be really disheartening to see that as a professional in the field because One of the things I like to do, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I want to talk about the nuance. I want to talk about the fact that depending on where you work, what industry you're in, what geographical location you're in, who is your leader, your role as an instructional designer can be completely different. This has happened to me in real life. Every instructional design role that I have had has been completely different. And so to say that instructional design is all one thing or it's not certain things, to say that instructional designers don't do needs analysis like learning experience designers do or to say that, you know, micro learning is the solution to every learning problem 
these kinds of oversimplifications without further explanation in the comments or links to other articles and resources are just noise. They're people trying to be clever. They're people trying to be thought leaders. Unless they're trying to start a greater conversation, it's really just not worth your time to interact with those people. Um, Sometimes people do though. Sometimes people will intentionally put some vague statements out there. So I don't want to dog on everyone because sometimes people will make some really sweeping statements. I've done it before and I've said, all right, what do you think? And it's meant to spark conversation. It's meant to spark a discussion about that nuance. It's meant to get people to weigh in based on their experience and ideas and tell their stories. And that's a really great way to to network. And so that's the, like the second question that I get is once people say, how do I know who to follow on LinkedIn? How do I then network with those people? And the simple thing is to interact with their posts, interact with their articles, um, you know, and then to post yourself on LinkedIn as well. And I see people make a pretty common mistake when they post on LinkedIn. They'll post a certificate or like a LinkedIn learning course that they've completed and they'll just post the certificate and that's it. Nothing. Just just post it. Yeah, you might get a few, oh, good jobs, but you'd get a lot more engagement if you said, hey, this course taught me blah, blah, blah that I didn't know before and I found it really helpful, and I think I want to find more resources on X. Can anybody in my network tell me where I can find more resources? Or something like, hey, I learned this, that, and the other, and that kind of goes against what I learned in this previous course that says this, that, and the other. What does everybody think? And ask a question. Make a post and ask a question so that people have something to react to and to respond to And then you'll start talking to people. People who will start commenting on your post will start seeing more of your posts. They'll become frequent commenters. You'll find yourself messaging them and going, hey, we keep commenting on each other's posts. Let's get a coffee. And it'll be so much more natural than you reaching out to strangers on LinkedIn and saying, hey, I'm new to the field. Can we chat? (laughs) Which is totally fine and totally acceptable, but someone's more likely to say yes to that invitation if they've already interacted with you, right? They're more likely to give of their time freely if they've seen you around. So make sure that you're you're posting something to react with. And I've said it a million times, but I'll say it again. I'll say it until, until I retire. Do not complain about hiring managers or recruiters all the time on LinkedIn. That's a sweeping statement, I know. It's an oversimplification. Heidi, you just said, don't listen to people who do give these grand sweeping statements. Okay, fine. Let me explain. First of all, if you're always complaining about the job search, about recruiters ghosting you, about hiring managers not treating you fairly, if that is the bulk of your content that you're posting on LinkedIn, me as a hiring manager is going, when is that person going to realize that maybe they're the problem? 
not all of these recruiters, not all of these hiring managers that they keep complaining about. Because if you're complaining there, what is your attitude like in the interview, right? And also, maybe the hiring manager or recruiter saw you complain about other hiring managers or recruiters, right? And so it's just not a best practice to do a lot of complaining. Now, that said, if somebody mistreats you during the job search process, you can absolutely vent about that on LinkedIn. I have before. I um, have had recruiters say pretty rude things to me during interviews. And I've complained about it and said like, hey, you know, note to recruiters out there, like, just keep some of these comments to yourself. Yeah. But it's a one-off, right? And that doesn't happen to me all the time. And it shouldn't happen to you all the time. If you're constantly being mistreated by recruiters, then there's a disconnect somewhere. Either you're giving off a vibe or you're not giving them the right information or you don't understand what they're there for or something like that, right? There's some sort of miscommunication if you feel like you're consistently being mistreated by recruiters. And I'm not talking about ghosted because everyone gets ghosted by recruiters. Um, Remember the hiring managers can see what you're posting. And if it's consistently complaints about the job search and complaints about the people that you're talking to, those hiring managers are going to be less likely to want to talk to you. It's also okay to post about being frustrated with the job search. You just want to make sure that that doesn't become the only content you produce. Because if I'm a hiring manager and I go to your LinkedIn, I want to see things like what you've been learning, what you've been doing to upskill, especially if you've never been in the field before. What is it that you're doing and you're working on so that you can be an asset to my team? And if you're... LinkedIn is all complaints and it's all the job search is taking the life out of me and I I don't have time for it and it's just draining me and my mental health is so bad, right? I'm not going to be necessarily excited to interview someone whose headspace is there, right? And as much as I could try to like pull you out of that headspace and get you excited about a role on my team, I'd much rather talk to someone who is saying all of the things that they're doing to upskill and all the things that they're working on, the books that they've read, the podcasts they've listened to, you know, and, and who is having productive, constructive conversations with other people. Okay. So this question comes up in every new aspiring ID event speaking engagement, um, networking thing, it comes up constantly where people say, okay, so I've been told that I shouldn't put instructional designer as my previous title on my resume unless it was my real title. Is that true? So for instance, before I was an instructional designer, I was a college English professor People are being told to put instructional designer as their title, like I would put instructional designer instead of college English professor, because I technically 
designed instruction. But once you get into the field of instructional design, you realize that there are some very key fundamental differences between what you do as an instructional designer and what you did as an educator. As an educator, yes, you design instruction, but you don't necessarily do a full needs analysis because a lot of your criteria, a lot of your standards are already in place and you're teaching to those. And so, yeah, you may do a little needs analysis about the best way to deliver, but you're not doing a gap analysis, right? You're not searching for a gap in curriculum, right? That stuff is already given to you. You're also not, this is going to make some people mad, but I wasn't doing much development work, right? Um, A PowerPoint, a Blackboard course, some Word documents that are essay assignments. That's not really development, especially compared to what I did after I was an instructional designer, the amount of visual and graphic design skills that I had to amass, the amount of technology and tools that I had to learn. I was not developing very well into a high standard as an English professor. I also was doing minimal evaluation and my evaluation was very traditional, right? I wasn't really looking for business metrics or, you know, the metrics and the ways that we look at them when we're in corporate instructional design just wouldn't have made a lick of sense to me as a college English professor. So there's so many nuances, right? And when you say that you were an instructional designer, instead of just owning that you were an educator, first of all, there's nothing wrong with coming from education. It's a great place to come from and to come into L&D. But when you say you've been an instructional designer instead of an educator, it does two things. It shows that you don't quite fully understand yet what instructional design is Because if you did, like I said, you'd understand that nuance and you'd understand some of those differences. The other thing that it does is it sets you up to be erased from the job search. And here's why. If there's a background check, if someone is calling your previous employers, they will ask, did so-and-so work at X school as an instructional designer from 2014 to 2018? And your employer cannot verify that as your job title. They may not even know what it is. And unless they're willing to say, yes, they were an instructional designer, they might say, oh, well, no, they were a teacher here. But that comes back to the hiring manager that you technically lied. That's going to pull you out of the running so fast. And even if you were the best candidate, because A hiring manager is not going to run the risk that you're going to tell little white lies on the job, right? So we've covered that. It's not okay to lie and you don't, you shouldn't have to. But then the question that always follows is, okay, so I can't lie about my previous roles on my resume or on my LinkedIn, but what do I do about the LinkedIn headline? Because I want recruiters to know that I'm going for instructional design. I want recruiters to know that I'm changing careers, but I also don't want to seem desperate and put aspiring, right? First of all, I don't think there's anything wrong with putting an aspiring instructional designer. 
yes, it shows that you have limited experience in the actual role, but you want to be as honest as possible about your limited experience because you want to find a role that's a good fit for you and where you are. And to kind of mislead your way into a high level instructional design role when you've never worked in corporate instructional design before. I mean, good luck, more power to you, but I wanted support. I wanted mentorship. I wanted to have the expectation that I was going to work slowly because I was new to this. I think it's okay to be aspiring. I think it's okay to say that you understand the intersection of what you did before and what you want to do by saying, I successfully created engaging learning experiences and, or even things like diversity advocate, things that are beneficial to your job search that you are and that you do, but that aren't misleading in any way, because that's the biggest thing, right? And the last thing I'll say is that all of these answers that I've given you today, they're my opinion. They're from my experience in the different ID roles that I've had as a hiring manager who hires IDs. And given the fact that I have a foundational education in instructional design and a previous history as an educator, that's the only place that I can give you advice from. So don't just take my word for it. Don't just accept my answers as your only answers. Go out there and ask these questions of other people too. Get different types of feedback and figure out what works best for you. And that's really what it's really what it's all about, right? Thanks again for joining me on the blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and review us on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you'll tune in again soon.